This episode of the podcast is presented by Knowing Hospitality, a full-service hotel management and consulting company that works directly with hotel owners and managers to help stabilize their properties and take on projects that are critical to their operation. Knowing Hospitality can be the extra set of hands that you need to make sure your hotel is best positioned for today's environment. Visit knowinghospitality.com to learn more. Now let's get to the podcast. Welcome to the Proven Principles Podcast, the show that deconstructs the inner workings of the hospitality industry, breaking down the tools, tips, and tricks that the world's best-run hotels use every day. Here's your host, Adam Knight. What a year this has been. COVID has obviously been the big story, but for me personally, I took the leap and started my own company at the start of the pandemic. I launched the podcast and I've connected and in some cases reconnected with more people in the industry than in many previous years combined. And a big part of that is actually because of this podcast. What started as a hobby has really turned into a true passion project that I look forward to doing every single week. There have been far too many great memories and moments on the show this year to count, but I've tried to pull a few of them together to do a best of episode to highlight at least some of the conversations that resonated with me. Now, before we get to it, I just wanted to share a few fun facts about the show. This episode marks number 34 on the year, and there's been nearly 20 hours of content produced on the show. The top listenerships in order are the US, Netherlands, Canada, Thailand, and South Africa, with several other countries very close behind these top five. I wanna thank you all for your support throughout the year and for coming on this journey with me. I hope that some of the things that we talked about over these 20 hours of content have resonated with you or inspired you to take action. So let's get to it. This is episode 34 of the Proven Principles podcast, the best of 2020. Enjoy. This first clip is from episode 15 with Josh Hogan, where he talks about hotel marketing and spending money against OTAs who spend money marketing against your hotel and your destination. Here it is. With some of these smaller properties in particular, because I think it's an interesting road to go down, what are some, from your perspective, some places or some tactics that they might be able to use that are maybe a little non-traditional, but maybe they're traditional but aren't being thought of right now, just to get their message out there? Yeah, I think there's always this um, fear from the independent side that you can't compete with the brands because of their marketing spend and that power. two things here, really, I think it's important to remember that that marketing spend is generated by a percentage of revenue from their management agreements Mm. that they're not going to have. They'll have more than you still, but that power is going to be diminished (laughs) a little bit right now. Like they're not going to be spending as much unless they're really digging deep into investors and, and some of the same, same avenues that some independents might have as well. They're not, generating revenue that's going to generate that then marketing dollars to spend. So the leg up there isn't as dramatic as you would think. And I also feel sometimes, although they're very good at marketing, then the, you know, the trust factor, the safety, the independent companies can be un- unencumbered by those national campaign needs, right? Like if you're not, a, if you're a dependent hotel, you're going to be spending money potentially on regional or national campaigns that don't drive traffic directly to you. They drive the traffic to the brand around you. And that ultimately helps, but it's, it's not in a situation that I just mentioned earlier with the example about helping people move hotels in an uber competitive marketplace. Mm-hmm. It, you need marketing for your destination. I live in Los Gatos. I need to market this town, not 
Northern California, even in that example. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important to remember. Like you don't, you can compete. Don't, don't go into it feeling like you can't, you've got, you've got similar resources. You just have to focus them in the right way. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that I would say here that I would try right now this is where I'm going to get some UGMs to unsubscribe from your podcast right now. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's time to rethink OTAs. Um, mm. You've got an opportunity here. I would really encourage everyone to dive deep into where you're spending your marketing dollars and to first realize that every commission percentage that you spend on an OTA is a marketing dollar. That's we decided not to market for ourselves as independents. They're doing it for us. So it's a really good point. Right. You know, I I'll elaborate on this a little bit. I think it's taking back the power. Right. And one of the things that um, I did a lot of case studies on this in my, in my time with uh, my last employer. And we, we really looked at, we had a group of 10 hotels and we took a really hard look at how much we're spending annualized with a singular OTA partner and what would happen if we cut that relationship off, took that, that money um, and invested it in the right people and then used the rest for our own marketing. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of hoteliers don't realize is, you know, we're all spending between 12 and 22%. That's kind of the range on commissionable bookings with third parties. Mm -hmm. Probably it's closer to 15 to 18 on average, but it ranges. Mm -hmm. And when you look at a, call it a 200 room or slightly smaller hotel over a year, you can be spending pretty easily a quarter million dollars mm -hmm. in marketing on that OTA partner. And what a lot of hotels, hotels don't realize is that when they're doing that and also spending money on direct customer acquisition, doing their own marketing, they're just driving up their costs. Mm -hmm. And Google's sitting over here in the corner like they own the boxing ring and you're in there with the OTA partner paying to be in the boxing ring, just giving Google your money, both of you fighting <laughs> for who's going to get the eyeball. And uh, the point I'm trying to make is it's not smart. It's been necessary, but it's not smart to do both. If you're going to have an OTA strategy, just lean into it and let send you your traffic mm -hmm. or do it yourself. But when you try to do both, it's oil and water. You're giving them money to market against you. And then you're paying to market against them, marketing against you. You're throwing your own dollars away. Oh yeah. yeah. It's it, you're driving up the cost of those ads. Right. So take that quarter million dollars in this example, spend a hundred of it on the right person, spend another 150 of it on your actual marketing spend mm -hmm. and drive those customers yourself. Mm -hmm. it, it's hard to do in that example with one hotel with 10, if you can get buy-in, that's where you start to really see success. Next up is from the very next episode, number 16 with Parul Suri, where she talks about revenue management practices that have worked in the past that are going to help us get visibility into the future. Here it is. It's hard to get a bead on what's going on in the future right now. You know, if anybody tells you they know what's going to happen, you know, they're yeah. Just trying to, trying to get click out of clickbait. I don't know what, but, um, you know, there are probably some practices that have worked in the past in terms of trying to get visibility on the future. So, and some of that may not be having a crystal ball, but it may just be 
making sure your foundation is solid yep. so that you can build on it as we get into you know what this is all going to look like throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. Long-winded question uh, or way of phrasing the question, but you know, as you look at the next 30, 60, 90 days, what are some things that hotels and revenue managers should be doing to set themselves up for success? Um, so yes, the industry is going to come back and it's coming back. You know, the, we've seen the worst, the worst decline was about 79, 80 per 79 point some percent in the month of April. And you know, coming back, May was like 70% down year over year. I'm talking about just the U S right now. And, uh, you know, it is coming back. Um, to answer your question, uh, things have worked in the past, which will work and may not work in the future. Um, what I definitely want to say is that those marketing plans, those budgets and those business plans, they need to go out of the window because that is not going to work. Like, uh, you know, I was listening to someone, I was listening to Simon Sinek's uh, podcast and, you know, he was talking about this finite game and that infinite game. We are not in the finite game. Any like we as hoteliers have always been in that finite game, like beat the competitor on mm. store, like you know, next week, and yeah, we win. We are in that infinite game. We need to sustain this this particular scenario, and that is going to be successful. And that 30, 60, 90 day plan is not going to work. What is going to work is the next week plan, mm. you know, understand and reevaluate it every single day, and then build your plan. Um, go come back every single day and reevaluate it to mm-hmm. be better. Like Mm -hmm. you cannot have a long-term plan. We can have um, scenarios like, you know, okay, if this happens, for example, if I have 40 rooms empty in my hotel and we are prepared to have them empty, how can I generate additional demand for those 40 rooms? Can I give it to a long-term guest? Can I convert it into apartments? Like, what do we need to do to generate demand? We can create scenarios like that and work on those scenarios, but having a plan in terms of this is how things are going to unfold, I don't think is going to be possible in this scenario because it's going to be different. We don't know if we're going to be hit with another you know another one in October mm-hmm. that's what everyone is talking about so that way we don't know about that's the unknown but we can be prepared for a scenario something that I started talking about starting in March you know when all of this hit us um, was that okay what can we what how can we as hoteliers adapt very quickly something that we have when done traditionally is that hotels are very traditional, you know, they take such like slow steps moving forward. And, you know, there are big, big small startups that quickly improvise and things change. How quickly Airbnb improvised and changed and, mm. you know, bookings have started to rise. Hoteliers don't think that way and that needs to change. We need to quickly readapt and reevaluate and stop saying we as hoteliers don't do that. No, hotels don't do that. Hotels need to understand what is going to be an, an additional source of revenue for them to be able to sustain it. And pay their bills, right? Mm-hmm. So um, can we convert those hotels into apartments? Can we have a subscription-based model? Learn from other industries. Revenue management exists in every single industry because everyone needs to make money, right? So how can you learn from different industries and not just from hotels to be able to generate that particular additional dollar is something that we need to look at. So the 30, 60, 90 day plan, I would say is more like a week on week plan. I plan that I'm going to have this particular, I'm going to focus on this particular customer base. I'm going to market this way. And this is how I'm going to get them to stay with us and mm-hmm. then take care of them. 
okay, it didn't work for us. Okay, what is our next plan? And then start improvising on that. So. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I actually, I really like the way that you phrase that or the, the way you position it because, you know, you may have been having a 30, 60, 90 day plan in the past because your booking window was mm-hmm. a lot longer. Your booking window might be day of now. It probably is in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. day of or 24 hours, maybe 48 hours. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, so yeah, you know, trying to find ways to deal with maybe the, the extra, you know, 40 rooms that are sitting there vacant that you can't sell. Keeping on the revenue management theme, episode 27 saw Fabian Bartnick talking about RevPAR index and how we need to change our mindset around some of these vanity metrics. What do you say to the revenue managers? And well, not just revenue managers, actually, because this is often driven by, by GMs, by asset managers, is directors of sales and marketing, the RevPAR index tends to be the stat that rules the day when it comes to revenue management. I think that it's long overdue that that changes. I think we're probably going to see change in that and moving to a different metric as we kind of move through this pandemic. But what do you say to that revenue manager or that GM that says, I already know how good I'm doing because we're performing at this level against our comp set. And you just look at our repar index and that'll tell you that we're doing well. Why do I need to go out and spend a lot of time and energy in figuring out optimizing my revenue management game when I'm already indexing over a hundred? Okay. My general question is whose comp set is it? I can create you a comp set that you're always at a 160, 170. Exactly. Not a problem. It's very subjective. I meet the next person and they tell me a different comp set and all of a sudden, oh yeah, yeah, but they're not really our comp set. You've got the HMA comp set. You've got, you know, comp set two. You've got, yeah. But that's the whole thing. COVID has shown up one thing and I call it the 2021 challenge. The rules have changed. The game has changed. We don't even know who's playing the game anymore. Isn't that the truth? yet... But yet we're going to say, referee, use the old rule book and tell us what needs to be done. If you can't win, change the rules. If you can't change the rules, ignore them. And the RGI stuff, it's fantastic. It's a clap on the shoulder that once a month, you look at that score, or even you might look at it daily, and you look yep. at it reperspectively. Weekly, yeah. And you say, look how well we did last week. Okay, where's the other $100,000 I need to hit budget? Because I can't do the repayments. Can't take rough part yes, of the Yes, I bank. understand we have to measure ourselves. But it's already flawed from the get-go that not all hotels that I want might be participating or that if I change the concept, my results will be completely different. The concept gives me a comfort factor. Nothing great was achieved by being in your comfort zone. You could I- argue right now that every hotel in your city is your concept. Demand is so depressed, travel is down everybody's competing on rate by and large, you're competing against every hotel in your city. Yeah, I I think some, what will happen, the the bigger question is always, how do you price when there's really no demand? Is it rate dumping or is it pricing where the demand is? If people have less and then, oh yeah, but then we're jeopardizing our positioning. Yeah, but the guy who did is full. My hotels, I always say, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm I'm not for dropping your rates and dropping your pants and doing that. But at the end of the day is if I know that I have a trigger and I switch it on and I go to 100% for Friday night, see it as a gift to those travelers that you would never take. That person will never stay on a Saturday night. 
that person will never stay on a Tuesday or Wednesday because that's when I can yield up. Right. But on the other days, if I can, and we did test those people you got in, guess what? They spent a lot in the food and beverage outlets. Right. So overall, they made more money. But then on the other hand, you go to other parts of the world and you are, say, RGI or RefPy Index, and they look at you like you're a sorcerer. So from that perspective, we also need to put a bit of reality onto it that some markets have more data than other. And unfortunately, either you have a data overload or you really just don't have enough data or even worse, they're still calling each other and then everybody lies to each other and saying, yeah, I was full last night. You, yeah, yeah, me too. Longtime restaurateur and food and beverage entrepreneur Josh Coppel was on episode 24 of the show. And this episode turned a little more personal where we talked about Josh's experience closing his restaurant Pru and Proper in downtown LA right at the height of the pandemic. We talk about pivoting, changes that we need to see in the industry, evolving your career, and really try to lay out a roadmap for people who are also deeply professionally impacted by the pandemic and how they can best move forward. Here it is. It all starts with a foundational question, right? Like, what would this look like if it was simple? Why is it that in my industry, I have to work 80 to 100 hours a week to break even? Why is it possible that I, why is it impossible for me to create any distance between me and my own business when there are some people that make millions of dollars and they don't even run their own business? Mm-hmm. Why, is, why is it that I can top line $3.4 million, true story, and net out less than 10%? And like, do you know how many things you can go do and make $300,000 that don't require soul-sucking work 80 to 100 hours a week? (laughs) Yeah. But there's this weird badge of honor at the same time, or there was, about, you know, putting in that number of hours and and hustling and working that hard uh, to, to... it, and not recognizing the cost of that on the backside, because it does come at a cost. You could put all of your time and energy into building your career in hospitality, but you don't have energy for everything and things eventually start to fall away. They do. There's a cost associated with it. So Pro and Proper is officially closed for now. It will not reopen in the location that it was in originally. I wrote an op-ed for LA Weekly talking about it. And what I talked about in this lengthy article wasn't about losing the restaurant. It was about everything I traded to keep the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've all made those sacrifices. And at the end of the day, one of the big aha moments for me, once I started spending more time with my family during the pandemic, was that they weren't the big losers when I wasn't around. Mm -hmm. I was the big loser. My daughter's never going to remember what it was like to be one or two or three. But in not being around, I won't remember what she was like at one or two or three. And that's a tragedy for me, not for her. Right. It's like uh, this forced reprioritizing um, has been needed. It's it's healthy in a way, even though it's it's such as this weird dichotomy because, you know, you got to do the reprioritization and there's a, there's, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about unraveling the business and kind of how that all came about. That's really difficult to do, but the benefits on the other side, the, the, the time you get with your family and, and the development of your other side of what you're trying to do here um, 
is positive. So I guess there's this push and pull right now that uh, can be hard to get your head around. It's all positive. Yeah. I quit. I quit. And I quit because I looked at it and I said, this isn't for me anymore. And I didn't care how much time I had put into it. I didn't care how much money I had put into it. There is courage in strategic quitting and looking mm-hmm. at your life and saying, this isn't working for me. And, and I can tell you, even though it was, it was time intensive, it was laborious to unwind the business. Mm-hmm. The hardest part was making the decision. After that, you know, the past is prologue, right? It, at that point, you're just, you're just easily unwinding something uh, that, that no longer needed to exist, at least yeah. in my life. So how did you get to that point where you eventually made the decision Prune Proper has to close? The decision, so here's what's interesting. The decision had less to do with Prune Proper has to close and more to do with Prune Proper needs to change. Mm. Um, and, and not really knowing what the, the future landscape of hospitality looks like. Uh, I thought we were, I thought we were, adventurous in choosing to open two blocks off Skid Row in a hundred year old building that's 6,000 square feet across two stories in a virgining community. You know, you feel like an explorer. You feel like you're committing to something that, that, that has the potential to have long-term resonance. Uh, but I don't know what the future of downtown looks like or the future future of that neighborhood or the future of communities in general relative to independent restaurants. I don't know what our product mix looks like. And we used to charge almost $30 for a plate of catfish. I don't know if people want that anymore. What I do know is that I need flexibility to figure that out. And having a leasehold that was $21,000 a month is not going to give me the flexibility I need. I just watched you swallow your tongue, Adam. Like, but seriously, $21,000 a month, like your options are incredibly limited. Right. And I needed more options. And so in order to get those, because I'll give you a great example. So to do 3.4 million out of 6,000 square feet, uh, with a new retail model paired with delivery and takeout paired with cocktails to go paired with dine-in, can I make the same money at a 3000 square feet? I bet I can. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I bet I can do it with less overhead. Right. And so, right. but if you're saddled with 6,000 square feet, then the question isn't what's the most efficient business model. The question is, how am I going to pay my rent? The question right. is, right, how do I make sense out of this square footage? How do I utilize every square foot to make more money? And I just mm-hmm. don't, I don't want to answer those questions. I feel like I've spent my entire professional career asking the wrong question. On episode 13, I had Clarence McLeod on the show. Clarence and I go way back to our early Fairmont days, and he truly helped launch my career and lay the foundation of customer service and luxury hotel operations that have stayed with me to this very day. On this clip, we're talking about proactive communication, hospitality basics, and some of the non-negotiable skills that are more important than ever. Well, I guess we should just get down to brass tacks here. There is... uh, I, to say that the times right now are crazy is an understatement. It's probably also overused, but you know, it's the reality. It's where we are. There are still some fundamentals about hospitality uh, and, and service delivery and engaging guests and engaging employees that are going to hold true no matter what situation we're in, whatever we're going through. Right. Um, and so at a high level, 
let's just dive right in. What are some of the things, what are the five things that we should be doing right now uh, or making sure that we're doing when we reopen? Okay, so I think there there's some, that's a very interesting question um, because the everything is so linked. So to put it in five fundamentals is kind of... Uh, it's kind of challenging for me to do, seeing that I wonder a lot. I'm not a very focused person. But <laughs> start, I will tell we'll start you start with this. the first. <laughs> I will tell you this. The the overarching belief of these fundamentals are not they're nothing new. The what makes it more vital now that we're coming out of a crisis is that they can no longer be negotiable. If you are in any environment where you think, well, maybe I'll Maybe I'll be engaging today. Maybe I won't. You know, if you are going to be contributing to the revenue stream of your hotel or whatever hospitality um, medium you have, you have to realize they're not negotiable. And I think one of the first ones that come to my mind is, you know, we get into, it becomes kind of a mundane because everyone says, you know, you have to communicate, communicate, communicate. Communication is going to be one of the vital or, one of one of the most important fundamentals of getting through this crisis successfully, uh, because what you need to do is you need to set the stage, the expectation of the guest, um, and this starts. This is where, you know, this is where you're going to bring bringing chocolate and roses for your reservation department because they're the ones that are going to have to tell tell the guest and be very honest with it that this is what this is what we're delivering and this is what protocol will be. So the expectation is set for the arrival. Mm. So communication is key. Communicating with your internal constituents, your, your your team members, vital. You can't. You there's. You know, because you're getting busy, you can't say, okay, we'll do the briefing later on. When everyone comes on shift, uh, the communication briefing is going to be very important because, you know, some this is going to be all. You know, some of this, the operating procedures are going to be very new. So in order to kind of uh, ensure that there are no hiccups, you have to be you know discussing it. These are the techniques. This is what we're using. This is, and you can also be willing to change. So the first one I would put out there is communication. Mm-hmm. Communicate, communicate, over-communicate, communicate. I love I that over, you like uh, that. Yeah, it's communication because, you know, once the stage is set, um, we always consider ourselves in hospitality that we're executing a you know, theater performance. But once the stage is set, you know, the audience knows exactly what we're expecting, whether we're going to be doing Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so communicating, yeah. communicating is the way to go. I- I love that you led with that because, you know, I, I can think back to when I was, um, you know, in a position where the reception of the communication was important to me being able to do my job effectively. So I wasn't necessarily the one, um, well, you know, you, I, I suppose in a more junior role, you'd be communicating a guest, right? You'd be on the front line, but I needed to get the information to be able to communicate it. So sure. I, I was never too uh, attuned to how that message got crafted. And it wasn't until I got into more senior positions that I was the one crafting that message that suddenly you start thinking about the audience, right? And all the different inputs that you have to have. And you talk about, you know, communicating a plan, especially with opening and, you know, how how you're going to communicate with your guests and how they know what's going on. You've got to, as a manager who's crafting that message, you really have to think about the the plan and all the details itself and in or in the plan and be able to distill it into a way that people can understand. Right. So I'll, I'm going to tell you a story where this 
under where, where, where when you when you have miscommunication or you don't communicate, how it can work as a dissatisfier. Um, on one of my um, one of my experiences uh, at Fairmont uh, Hotels and Resorts when I did the opening of Fairmont Gold in Cairo, uh, what people forgot to tell me was that when you're entering hotels in Cairo, you have to go through a metal detector. Mm. Right. So coming into a luxury hotel, that's one of the last things that I expected. Mm-hmm. Now, when I got to the hotel, I found it very off-putting. It was a very, very, very unusual experience because remember, I'm coming there now to open the, the, the most luxurious component of Fairmont Hotels and Resorts. And the arrival piece, never once did I execute it to involve a metal detector. <laughs> right. right. So, anyways, <laughs> I'm expecting, you know, and, and we laugh about it today because what I've been equating to a lot of our clients that we have now that metal detector for me, what's, what that has translated to in today's environment for hospitality is that wellness center that would be in a lot of the lobbies where they'll be checking your temperature. It's this, let's think of it in the same way. It's off-putting if you don't know to expect it. Right. right? right. So I go through this metal detector and I, I, you know, I go through that whole experience. And while I was in Cairo, I had a, a few of my, because uh, you know from working on Fairmont Gold, you have what I like to call followability, guests that will come and see you or stay with you when you're in a city that they are because they know you're around and, you know, the, you know they, they want to experience the new Fairmont Gold and all that sort of thing. And uh, of the five guests that, that came and stayed there in, uh, separately, and none of them were from Cairo, they were just doing business in Cairo and they'd never been there before. But what came out of that experience, whenever we talked about that experience after the fact, the one thing they all talked about was the metal detector. Not about the great service and how wonderful the team on the floor, it was about the metal detector. And that became the cocktail currency piece, right? So what came out of that for us, and cocktail currency, one of my former leaders talked about cocktail currency, which is like, how do they talk about the experience when they're in the presence of like-minded individuals, right? Mm. Now, the great thing about it that they talked about with this whole metal detector is that I found a way to bring Fairmount Gold to the lobby for the for this metal detector because they could see us, the Fairmont Gold team on the other side, once they're coming through the metal detector with, you know what my favorite thing is? Mimosas, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there's alcohol on the other side, whether it be with alcohol or with Sprite. There's yep. that, that, you know, there's that, there, here's your price to come through the metal detector. <laughs> and there's your butler in That's white gloves waiting for you. That's the carrot. And, that, you know, so that became such an, a nice lead-in uh, to having that uh, eyesore of a metal detector there waiting for you in the lobby. So that's just one of the examples of, uh, had that been communicating it to me, um, it wouldn't have been sort of um, that put off. But the mm-hmm. fact that we communicated to the guests that came after me just look for that glass in the lobby and the butler in that gold tails. Right. That's, that's home. That made that experience completely different. There was a statement that came out of episode 31 with Ron Swidler that stuck with me ever since we recorded. And it's that we may not be qualified to answer the questions that are being asked right now. While the episode was about the hotel of tomorrow, this point alone shares much more information about how the project came together and a deeper way of approaching problems that I think we can all adopt. Fritz Van Passion, former CEO of Starwood, had said that, you know, it, it, 
being nimble is probably the most important uh, attribute. Uh, he said that uh, about eight years ago, and it's still true today, probably more so than ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, right now there's so much going on, and I like the way that you uh, th- that you described what it is that the company does because I think owners and managers right now are the playing field is so broad that you know, the, the, the trying to figure out how much flexibility should I have? What should I do with my asset? Um, you know, who's my new target audience? What kind of technology should I bring into my property? What's going to provide value? What's going to just be noise that I'm spending money on that doesn't bring any value? Um, th- we're still trying to figure a lot of things out right now. Well, and and you and I have talked about this before, Adam. I feel like some of the problems that we're facing as an industry are problems that maybe we're not qualified alone to be able to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember years ago as technology was starting to play a bigger part in the guest experience, we were being asked our advice about the technology to integrate into a hotel. And um, we answered to the degree that we could, but we always suggested we bring in experts uh, that you know that could answer those questions for us. The same became true, and when we looked at issues around security, uh, some of the projects that we work on have to have heightened level of security to them. Uh, and again, we don't necessarily have that expertise. And then with the pandemic that we're all in the midst of right now, we we're being asked questions about. Uh, health, safety, sanitization, and that's not something that uh, we were ready to, you know, kind of uh, respond to in the most responsible way as quickly as we could until we were self-educated, but also surrounding ourselves with experts who might be able to help us. So I think that's where, as as our industry is shifting to keep pace with the um, kind of rate of technology adoption, which uh, is probably accelerated two or three times over the past six months, uh, meaning we've probably leapt forward two or three years in technology adoption through this pandemic because of touch, touchless technology or app-based technology or uh, voice activation, things that don't require you know contactless is, is key there. We're all kind of trying to accelerate the solutions that we can, that we can find at, as we face these problems together. Finishing off this best of episode, I had to include something from episode 33 with Jeremiah Tower, the original celebrity chef. He's such a great storyteller, and because of his years in the industry and experiencing so much, he's got incredible perspective on where we are right now and how we can best move forward. What we talked about in this clip was what needs to change in the hospitality industry, training your team, and the effort that's needed to be the best. Here it is. When you take a step back and you look at the industry as a whole, um, you know, you, the Monday morning quarterback it a little bit. What would you like to see change in hospitality? What's, what is it within the culture that may be broken that we need to start to move towards fixing? What's that piece of advice you give to the, the young supervisor or the young manager to help them, you know, pull this direction, this, this industry kicking and screaming in a new direction? It's very important for to know what perfection is in hospitality, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel. It's impossible to know that if you haven't experienced it. If you're going to work for a group, find a group that is enlightened and wealthy enough to say, okay, you're going to go spend a night at the Four Seasons in New York. 
um, and follow the whole experience. And then you're going to come back and tell us from the time you first called them or made a reservation or how you met a reservation and you flew in. With any luck, you would have traveled for 20 hours before you'd get there because that's a real test mm-hmm. of you and, and them. And then it, up until you're in a cab or a limo leaving, you know, the next day or two days later, if it's perfect, if it's like, for instance, the Georges V in Paris or the Four Suns in, in New York, mm-hmm. um, you'll learn everything you need to know. If you're paying attention, if you're inspecting it, you know, what is your experience, let alone all of that? What is just the experience in the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Is there a place to hang your bathrobe? All that kind of stuff. There should be a checklist in your mind. So when you're a top manager or a manager or a trainee or an owner, that checklist is in your mind revolving all day, night long mm-hmm. as you manage your hotel. And it's a blessing and a curse. You, 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 you have it, but when you have it, you can't turn it off. Well, you better be obsessive or, or you know, do something else. <laughs> That's true. I, I'll never forget the, I had an executive housekeeper early in my career that used to inspect the bathroom by sitting on the toilet. Yes, yes. And You so can't you just could, walk around like no, a housekeeper you, with a clipboard, excuse me. Yeah. You have to sleep in that room. You know, all of you listening, you know, if you, if you want to know, read the, a couple of biographies of Cesar Ritz. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Who was so obsessive and so knowledgeable that you know he, his brains collapsed when he was forty-five? Yeah. Uh, just blew his the brains blew themselves out. <laughs> this is a man who, when they opened the Ritz in Paris, had every single napkin unfolded and folded in front of him. Every single one. He tried out every single mattress. I mean, okay, that's going a little far, but obsessive. there was no no in Cesar Ritz's life. And mm-hmm. his partnership with Escoffier, the chef, uh, was amazing. Somebody said to them once, I think it was at the, one of the hotels in London, they had the Prince of Wales for dinner in one place and somebody else in another one. And there was a Grand Duke of Russia who came in late and said, I would like, you know, the private, whatever private dining room. And Ritz said, I'm sorry, you know, there's uh, actually, they're all taken. And he, he said, but you know, we have the basement. We can flood it and freeze it and do a winter wonderland for you. And that's what they did for the Grand Duke of Russia. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, talk about thinking on your feet. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, you know, yes, and now what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, ultimately, you, yeah, you're trying to create or solve a problem and you end up creating a whole new problem that uh, right. you, got, you have right. to fix to make it better. That's hospitality. That's hospitality, though. This was the best of 2020. If anything stood out for you this year, or if you have any feedback for the show going forward, I'd love to hear from you. This has been a year that we will all remember for the rest of our lives. But in spite of everything, if you look hard enough, you will find some positives. Whether you've found a new career path, spent more time with loved ones, learned a new skill, or just took time to breathe, something good has come from it. For me, the podcast started as a hobby and has become a major passion project. And I'm really excited about the roadmap that we have put together for 2021. I want to say thank you for your support over the past year. Thank you for continuing to listen each week. And thank you for sticking with me as we bring the show into the new year. So on that note, happy new year to you all and all the best in 2021. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. For past episodes, show notes, or if you've got a story that might make a great episode, 
head on over to theprovenprinciplespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, even on YouTube. And if you haven't already, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to The Proven Principles Podcast.